and ride with me in my foul life. One thing you were saying today about where we're at is you were talking about how this land is kind of distributed through this area down to the Gulf. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me real quick. You got you, you started saying that there was a lagoon, there was the plateau. Well, no, was- you come. Steve can do this better than I can, but you know, you come out of the mesquite or whatever's above you there, you hit a prairie. This was a prairie before they plowed it all up. So, okay, and then it goes to some marsh and then and, and, and then to the laguna and then to the gulf. That's right. So, you know, you know the laguna, you ever hunted the laguna around Corpus Christi? No. It's the same laguna here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It runs all the way down to Mexico. Where yeah, we hunted in Mexico. Too. I used to hunt in Rockport. That's right, Rockport. In Rockport's in Texas. Yes. Yeah, down right down right before you get to um, uh, Corpus Christi, you'd take a left and go over to the coast. Rock Tech's a beautiful little tourist town, you know. Yes. Uh, George Strait got a condo there, you know, them kind of people there. You know? When you hear about rice, you hear California, Arkansas, Louisiana mainly, and continental United States. Worldwide, you hear China, but you don't. I don't recall me hearing much of Texas having rice growth. So Texas was actually the leader in rice production. It was actually where it was actually founded and first farmed. Is it still the leader? No, no. Urbanization's slowly taking the rice away off of Texas. Uh, Houston uh, and the areas have, have expanded so much. But in, in the, some of the first rice production in the United States came from Texas. It, it hadn't been that many years ago that a lot of people from home would snow goose hunt in Katy, Texas. That's right. And you go through there now, it's 50 miles of concrete. That's right. That's right. Because Katy used a, to be like the capital. Oh, it was the capital. Yeah, it's no good. And Eagle capital. Lake actually Eagle has Lake, a sign that says mm-hmm. capital, Goose Hunting Capital mm-hmm. United States. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so the, the American Sportsman with Kurt Gowdy filmed with Andy Griffin in this area that we're hunting yeah. back in the 70s. I think, Chad. Was the rice well, here back then? Oh, yeah. It's here. It was it's been here since right after World War II. Is that the only reason it's prevalent for ducks in this area is because of the rice? That and it on the pathway to the Laguna. Mm-hmm. So our birds are going to Mexico, depending on the weather. So the Central Flyway doesn't just quite end in Texas. It goes all the way into Mexico. So they're coming. Sometimes they'll come and then reverse migrate back as well, depending on the habitat. I think the answer to your question, uh, Chad, is that Texas is so big and so diverse they just don't get known for this. You know, there's, there's yeah. too many other things to be known for. You right. know, they got the West Texas part. You know, they got all the people in the Central Texas part. They got the hill country. They got the panhandle. And so this this area just don't get talked well, about. Well, and again, we, Chad and I talked about it too. We just don't get the mallard. Yeah. And so everybody wants to kill a mallard. Sure. And we do. just don't get them. Yeah. But we get lots of ducks, yeah. thousands of ducks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I finally talked to him to coming and hunting a couple years ago in January when mm-hmm. Mike came down and mm-hmm. he said he just couldn't believe how many ducks. And he yeah. was way in North Texas and they had no ducks. Yeah. And so when he called me and yeah. we had ducks, yeah. we've had ducks the whole season. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be something going on where the ducks would either stay uh, north of, uh, of North Texas where he was. Well, if you go north, there's a lot of ducks. You go right. south, there's a lot of ducks. Right. Somehow they're just not it's hanging up in that particular yeah, area now. Probably 10, 15 years ago, a biologist told me that that the mallards were would terminate their migration route within 90 miles north and south of the Louisiana-Arkansas border, which is us. And, I mean, we'd be filled full up with mallards. You right. know? Now, a lot of those mallards don't get south of Missouri, Kansas. Right. Uh, some parts of Oklahoma. 
do you you think that that's mainly is there an actual answer to that question when people say where are the ducks you know like you hear it a lot in louisiana where you're from you heard it in arkansas that things have changed you also hear a lot of people say the flyaways have shifted mainly they say to the west even in canada or even up in like north dakota you hear people say well a lot of our ducks are west of us mm-hmm. now do you do you think that, that that there is an answer for why the ducks don't get down or do they and we're just we're just not seeing them in the places that we're used to they're just in different parts down here yeah, there's an answer. And go everybody can have their opinion. Don't make mine right, but uh, you know, you look at it over the, all the years. It's um, it's food and weather. Uh, you know, the, they used to freeze the food and the water over in Missouri. They don't mm-hmm. do it anymore. Okay, so a mallard's not going. Well, that's not exactly true. The the most of the mallard's not going to go any further south than they have to to get feed and water. Yeah, freeze okay? line. Okay, right? and they used to have to come to North Louisiana to do that. Southern Arkansas stud guard. Monroe, those you know, those right. duck type places like that. And now they can sit there in Missouri and they're growing tons of corn up there. Ethanol, you know, expanded the corn market uh, uh, dramatically. I don't know how much, but you know, that was a whole new use for corn. And so they grow tons of corn. They go corn where I live now. They never grew corn before, ethanol where I live. You know? So they got corn and if they can get to some water, uh, and then they got other feed besides that too. You know, they got dry field, they got wet field. And ain't no reason for them to come down here. Now the weather part is not going to change. The farming tactics may change with time. I don't know about that. So, do you, is it a is it a fact that Louisiana doesn't get the ducks that it did, let's say, in twenty years ago, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, on record is like one of the most historic seasons in the Arkansas Stuttgart flooded timber area. Um, is it does Louisiana really not get the ducks that they used to get? Because it seems to me that that like I've been all over Texas hunting ducks and a lot of the places down here have are full up of ducks. A lot of the time I've been here, but are, is, is that because a lot of those Arkansas and Louisiana ducks have shifted to Oklahoma and Texas? Well, a, a number of things have changed, uh, Chad, and I'll give you a statistic. Uh, Louisiana was the number one duck killing state forever by a margin of two and a half to one mm. because we were killing two and a half million ducks. Louisiana, not a real big state. Two and a half million ducks. Arkansas was killing a million. California was killing a million. So that's two and a half. I think the last I saw was about number five in the nation. So that'll tell you that part of it. Now, you can easily see if you travel around like you and I do, and I've probably been doing it for more years than you can, the flyway has shifted west some. You know, We used to have a lot of um, widgeon, widgeon where we were. And we still have a few. We don't have many, but you can go up through central Texas up through here. And there's tons of widgeon. So them widgeons just went west. That's all they can they can be. And I think I think probably uh, a big part of that is the hunting pressure in yeah. the Mississippi Lower Mississippi yeah, Highway. I, I mean, uh, when I was on the Wildlife Fishing Commission, one of those biologists that was doing aerial surveys, it, he made I can always remember the quote. He said he said if the number of duck blinds with decoys around them is in the indication, the hunting pressure is phenomenal in your area. And that's about the, that's about the story. You know, if, if anybody that's got a, a a place up there that will attract ducks, there's about a duck blind built on it somewhere, and they either hunting it themselves, they leasing it out. Well, by the looks of this morning, <laughs> it, there's hunting pressure where we're at right now. Now, is that because it's a celebration of the blue ring wing teal, or is that constant of what we've seen this morning? There was a lot of trees. Uh, it's a celebration. It's the first thing you can hunt, right? It's the first duck you can hunt. So it's. It is truly a celebration. 
especially when the the limit went from four ducks to six. Yeah, we talked about it on some other shows that yeah, you know, it's, that, uh, it, it kicked it's, in when it, it kicked to in six and, it, and it really jumped the participation up in it. So, do these guys that we saw this morning, all of these hunters? Do they stay pretty consistent throughout the big duck season too, or does it kind of fall off? No, it falls off. You know, Texas, even though we we have a lot of ducks, it's still a deer hunting state when you think of Texas. And so a lot of the guys get divided up between deer hunting and duck hunting. And But uh, we, we do lose quite a bit. Do you consider yourself a Southerner, Steve Biggers? Oh, yes. I'm a so, true Texan. So is Texas considered the South? Yes. Hmm. You said it wasn't. I said it was a hybrid. You know, it kind it kind of is, and uh, you know, I, I told you they fought. You know, they fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. You know, you had to be Southern to do that. But at the same time, it it it, it was uh, historically when the Anglo's got to coming in, it was it was a little different people from the from the Southern. A lot of people don't say the same thing about Louisiana. They don't say we're not true Southern, but you know, we got the Cajun culture and we got the Creole culture and we got all all that. Uh, type deal, but I, I feel like I'm as southern as you can get. And you, you can too, listen huh? to me talk yes. and tell that, you know. So you're so Texas is part of the South. Um, all obviously not all of Texas because there's a lot of parts of Texas that don't have a lot of southern influence to them. Is that fair to say, or do you think that te- Texas as a whole is a southern state? I, I know that it's I, in the South, but isn't it considered more southwestern? Maybe so. Maybe in the maybe in the Panhandle area up toward New Mexico or something like that, you could consider it southwestern. I consider it Texas, and not even the South, just Texas. We're we're our own thing. Okay, I'll buy that. Think of it like this: Texas, by all rights, should be probably four states. Yeah. In the eastern part, the two states on the eastern side right. would they're be really southern. They're really connected. They're Louisiana's cousin. And they and that's right. And the two states on the west side would be. Oh, southwestern. Southwestern. Yeah, and this is, you know, what does El Campo mean? The camp, right? Mm-hmm. So, what is the, um, thinking about what we experienced today, the mojo, the, the actual spinning wing, it was why we killed ducks today. Okay, we, we are calling a little bit, and I think that we. It's why we decoyed ducks today. Why we decoyed ducks yeah. today, yeah. yeah. Um, no wind. We weren't where they wanted to be. The calling, I think, helps a little bit, but I don't know how much with Teal. Um, the mojo, though. Talk to me about, in your opinion, as the founder and as the patent holder, how instrumental has it been in changing duck hunting? You talk about the pressure of duck hunting and how many hunters are doing it. Has mojo been responsible for the growth of this the wing shooting of, of actual waterfowl. And I know that we have dove and I know that you make other products, but can, I'm talking specifically waterfowl. Now is Mojo responsible for the expansion of duck hunting? The six, you know, people co- consistently experiencing success and just as the founder of it, what, how would you answer that? Mr. Terry Demon is like Mojo is the reason why more and more people duck hunt because they, they it's easier to find success throughout it. Well, it's a complicated question, and the, and the answer would be rather complicated. But uh, it's basically along the lines that you uh, you say, uh, Chad. You know, clearly in the in the early years of spinning wing decoys, the ducks had never seen them. They were unbelievably effective. 
you know, the, the feds ran some studies, some states ran some studies that showed that the success rate with and without, they would hunt 30 minutes with and 30 minutes without, 30 minutes with and 30 minutes without, because it's different on different days, that the success rate would be in the two and a half to three times uh, in the early season and would diminish down to more like one and a half or two times toward the end of the season. And, of course, toward the end of the season, with or without a mojo, they're getting very, very, very hard to kill, you know. So certainly it had a big, uh, it was a big factor. And in the early years when you had all these wars going on, if you will, about, you know, outlawing them and all that stuff, you know, tons of conversation going on about that. But, and we didn't get involved in that because I'm not necessarily the right messenger to be making some of these, you know, some of these conclusions uh, because I, I have a vested interest in it. But what it would do, it would allow somebody that, that couldn't didn't have the best place in the world to go didn't have the best equipment didn't have all that stuff because let's face it guys waterfowl hunting is an expensive sport it's an equipment intensive sport you know and and it's gotten a whole lot worse you know during the life of mojo not because of mojo they don't cost that much more but you know people now you know we, we used to if we had to pay 69 dollars for a set of waiters we thought we'd gone crazy now it's 900 dollars you know we used to pay $200 for a shotgun. Now it's $1,800, $2,000, you know. So that's expensive equipment for, for a lot of people that can't do it. But what the Mojo did, it let them go to a place that wasn't as good as the premium places, you know, and they didn't have to have all the premium equipment and allowed them to be successful in duck hunting. And our theory about that at the time was, they look, you know, hunting numbers are dropping. Now, right now, they've kind of hit a, hit a, hit a floor, at, at a slightly less than five percent, but at one time they were falling pretty fast. They look, if you if we lose many more uh, hunters, you know, you get down below five percent, you become irrelevant. You know, you're politically irrelevant. You got no voice. You got no seat at the table. You know, they don't care about you anymore. You know, and we can't let that happen. And probably the only thing that holds us in there is because it's such a passionate sport, and it's a it's a big money spender. You know, people spend a lot of money on. Uh, on, on hunting equipment so so you know that was kind of a rambling around answer but that's basically what it is and, and certainly it had a you know it had an effect on all of it you know and you know i uh, people are surprised when i give them this answer and i said you know some of what what mojo did was good and you know some of it was probably bad you know we did uh it, it did bring a lot of people into into uh waterfowl hunting and and that caused pressure, you know. And, and the 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 federal system that they use today, where, for, where you have the liberal system and on down less and less and less. Well, as long as Mojo has been in existence, we've never not had the liberal system in the Lower Mississippi Flyway. I know that on the East Coast and in California, you know, they've changed some out there, but we've been the liberal sixty days and six ducks, you know, for as long as Mojo's been around. And when that happened. We thought we was probably just going to kill twice as many ducks for twice as many days, but it didn't work that way. You know, we, we really pressured the ducks. You know, we taught them a duck knows what a duck blind looks like. They know what a duck decoy looks like. They learn what a mojo looks like. You know, they know what a duck call sounds like, and they learn to stay away from it. And that's a good thing, because if it didn't, we'd annihilated them. You know? So it's had some good and some bad, but it's uh, it's it's helped keep the hunter's numbers up some, the waterfowl hunter's numbers up some. I do believe that. What do you think, it's awesome. Steve? Is, it's awesome. It is awesome. And I think that you would attest that Mojo changed sure. your success rate. Sure, yeah. So, right? you know, this is my 40th year guiding. And um, we've been teal guiding the whole time. And I think I shared with you yesterday when we passed by that rice field that the teal were getting out of. When I first started teal hunting and teal guiding, we would have waded off into that rice field, found some tractor ruts, put out a few decoys, 
and it would truly have been just a pass shoot. It was a wet dove hunt. That's what you said. And then when the foot mojos first came out, we'd stick one on a levee, and we noticed that they, you know, here they are. They centered up on us. And the next thing you know, now instead of hunting the rice fields, we would take set aside or moist soil projects, as we call them now. But 10 years, 20 years ago, we called them a set aside field. Mm-hmm. And we would work that up and disc it and open it with the mojo. And that allowed us to put build a blind for teal season. We, we did all this for regular season before. But back then, all we maybe had was a jerk cord or something to create the motion. But so it, it, it definitely revolutionized the teal hunting for us and it's been since about mid 90s probably that it uh that it's really changed for us one of the most interesting stories that kind of follows along that we had was that some guy called us from it's a uh, upper midwest it was either minnesota or wisconsin i'm pretty sure about that and he bought this little club and they had eight potholes and they had eight members and you show up there and you draw you know draw and that's the pothole you get to go to well this one pothole was dry that year and so the, whoever drew it either made arrangements to go hunt with somebody else or they turned around and went back home, you know? So he said, we drew the dry pothole and uh, nobody, you know, we didn't have nobody to go hunt with. So we took our mojo and stuck it over there in the, in the dry pothole. And he said, we, we did great. <laughs> do, do you think that speaking of, you know, just that, that pressure and the, the, the influx of hunters coming in, dry field hunting has never been, as popular and again i'm i only started duck hunting 20 years ago you've been doing a lot longer both of you have but dry field hunting in canada canadian provinces and then where you talked about where there's a lot of corn now because of ethanol and the explosion of that um you can't kill them in a cornfield in or a pea field in canada i'm not saying you can't because if you have some full body goose decoys out there you, you'll get some gadwalls to float in, some mallards in Canada in the early light. Mm-hmm. But when that sun comes up and it hits those mojo wings, I've seen the most memorable, mm-hmm. powerful, oh, yeah. majestic mallard, um, you know, just the, the, what they're doing. They're in their majesty. And I, the power of it, and I get goosebumps, no pun intended, talking about it. But you you wouldn't see that if you didn't have a spinning wing. And, and a story that I was with with somebody that we both know, I'm not going to say any names, was he didn't want to give the credit to the, the spinning wing. So... He complained the whole time, get it out of there, get it out of there. Well, we're filming, get it out of there. I don't want it on film, okay? Put it behind us. So then the ducks start landing behind us. Get it back out there, get it back out there, right? Because we stopped killing ducks Mm -hmm. because the mallards were center punching on top of that mojo. Mm -hmm. You can call at them, you can do it, but like in those big fields in Canada, those pea fields are bad. Yeah, thousand acre fields. I mean, you can center ducks up. Yeah. And put them right in there. And people could say all they want that, hey, you know, that's not good. That's putting too much pressure on the ducks. Well, what's worse than that is shooting at them at 70 yards and crippling yeah, them yeah, and educating them that way, right? Yeah. 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 Center them up. And high success rate on your kill. Right? <clears throat> so it, the dry it, field part of it has been a huge benefit for you as far as the expansion of the brand goes and because people that aren't duck hunting water or in those northern states when the water's frozen Mm -hmm. they're still having success because they can get out in those dry fields you know the main point of a spinning wing decoy is not recognizable when we're hunting with one and that's long range attraction 
And uh, the, the highest and best use of a spinning wheat decoy is and always has been long range attraction. Right. But because in the early years, they all want to come land right on top of it, the hunters think of it as a finishing device. Right. And when it doesn't finish, you know, like when they get highly pressured and they're trying to stay away from anything that they're suspicious of and they don't want to land right on top of it, they say, well, don't use the thing. And that's absolutely the wrong thing to do because, you know, up in Canada, where you're talking about in the prairie part of Canada up there, you know, that duck might have been five miles over there. And they saw them wings and they that's came right. to them, you know. They can see uh, a spinning wing decoy uh, much, much further than they can see anything else. Let me correct my statement. They can see a properly operated spinning wing decoy much further than they can see uh, anything else. And they just take the garrison flock type uh, creatures and they don't you know, come check it out. You know, if you don't have one of them, then you, you miss the opportunity to get that. So we try to educate them, say, look, if they don't want to land right on top of them, don't take it out of the spread, right. move it over yeah, to the adjust, side. Yeah, you know? Adjust the location. Yeah. If you could put it a hundred yards yeah. over there, if you made that duck come within a hundred yards, you're right. blind. It wasn't never right. going to see your decoys. Then you can take right. your hunting skills after that and see if you can kill him or not. He told me that 10 years ago, and I've totally, because we used to pick them up, put them out. You know, you think they're shying off of them and stuff. And I never, I never take it up. I might reduce how many I have out, or I might move it even away from my, if they're, if they're correlating anything, they're correlating to the blind. If you got a big box blind out there in the middle, especially in Texas, we build a lot of taco stands, we yeah. call them big old brushy blind. Yeah. You got a mojo and they think they're shying off that. They're really, they're putting one and one together and equal yeah. two, right? So we, we move that thing 50 yards out of the way. Get them to come our way, and we do something else with jerk string or proper calling and that kind of stuff, right? There's stories and folklore about the mojo from here all over every flyway. California, I hear these stories a lot about the the breakfast places, the cafes, the sporting goods stores after the hunt, 10, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, mid-morning, people coming back in. And it was like a they saw a UFO. They're like, you wouldn't believe this. The ducks just, they wouldn't quit coming. You know, it's like eight, they saw aliens or something. They're like, I just can't believe the way they react to these things. Mm -hmm. Do you vividly remember your first duck over one and or the first experience over one? Do you vividly remember it and what you were thinking inside? Because something had to spark inside your brain because you're intelligent, you're an engineer. Like Steve says, you tend to overthink situations. Something had to tell you like, this is amazing. We're on to something here. We need, to, we need to put this in motion. But do you vividly remember that first duck? Yes, vividly. And my, my original partner, uh, a guy named Eric Crow, and uh, he and I grew up together, been knowing my family and his family do each other forever. Uh, he's the one that made the Mojo Mallard. I don't, you know, people give me credit for it, but I really didn't have much to do with that. Uh, he did. He's a master tinkerer. And it came about because uh, some some person in 1999 from California came hunting with Jeff Simmons, Simmons Sporting Goods. You don't know him, but Chad will know who he is. He owns a Bass Pro Size Sporting Goods store in Bastrop, Louisiana, of all places. And uh, this guy came from California to hunt with Jeff. I guess he would come with somebody else. I don't really know. And what Jeff wouldn't, and he brought one with him, and Jeff wouldn't let him put it out for the first two days. And the third day, he let him put it out. And boom, you know, it just happened, you know, just instantly once they put that decoy out. So Jeff starts talking to all the duck hunters that are coming through his store up there, and they all want one. Well, you couldn't get one. The, the demand farm exploded in 1999, and those guys that were making them were a couple of rice farmers making them in a farm shop in, in the Valley of California. And uh, so he calls Murray. He, he, that's a common, we were all common friends, you know. And he knew Murray could build anything. He said, can you build me one of these uh, these devices? I got all these people. 
people want to buy them in Mercer. Yeah, I built them for you. And uh, so, but they were using a little high-speed motor, and uh, they had a little pair of pulleys in there to adjust the speed down to get the wing speed right. And the drive, the drive belt was a little O-ring, and so you know the motor going, and then the wind blows, the thing wouldn't turn, or whatever. So, but Murray didn't know how to size the pulleys, so he called me as engineer for him, and he starts telling me about this decoy, and, and he's not doing a real good job of describing it. But if he had, it would have probably been even more confusing, you know. So, I, so he grilling me about whether I can size these pulleys or not. And I got interested in that, so I kept saying, tell me again, Murray, what this decoy is. He said, I don't know, but Jeff wants me to make some. I, I can make them, but I don't know how to size the pulleys. Can you do that? Oh, yeah. I said, well, yeah, I'll do that for you. I'll come up there at noon tomorrow, and we'll, we'll I'll size them pulleys for you. And so I go up there at noon, we get to looking at that thing, and so I don't like this piece of stuff, you know. And I didn't say anything else. He said, I know how to fix it. He said, you come back tomorrow at noon. I said, okay. I go back to my engineer and I always go back to work. I come back the next day at noon and he has taken a, a, a blower motor out of a Caterpillar cab. And back then all that big machining was 24 volt, you know? And so it's a 24 volt motor, double shafted motor. And in DC motors, battery powered motors, as opposed to plug it in the wall over there, the motor turns proportional to the voltage that you put to it. So say if you put a 12 volt motor on a 24, a 12 foot battery, I'm sorry, on a 24 foot, a 24 volt motor, it's going to turn half speed. You put a six volt battery on it, it's going to turn fourth speed. And, uh, and that's what you needed it to do, turn about four speed, because it's about a 3000 RPM motor, needs to turn about 700 RPMs, you know? So he took that double shafted motor and, um, and he, he, he built and raced uh, dirt track race cars. They wrapped them with 040 aluminum. So he took some sheets of 040 aluminum and started taking a pair of snippers and cutting the wings out of them, you know. And he got on his lay over there. He had a pretty nice shop. He got on his lay and made those uh, wing connectors that bolted them yeah. on that shaft, you yeah. know. And so uh, so that, that that's how I got started. And uh, so he only gave me one. The band was so much that he had some of his other buddies in the race car business that had shops around town helping him making them and however many they could make in a day. They'd take them up to seven sporting goods that night. Those people would come pick them up. They never owned one for more than a day. But he let me have one, but he'd only let me have one. Well, I went to my farm. It was during the week. And I just had just one other guy that ran the line all refinery. He'd go hunting with me all the time. Me and him go down there, just the two of us on the whole farm. And, uh, you know, we leave our decoys out. We don't anymore pick them up. But back in them days, you put yeah. the decoys out for yeah. the duck seed, pick them up and duck seed over, you know. And so I remember walking out and sticking that thing in the mud. And I didn't believe in it. And I can remember this. It was stupid as it could be. But I can remember looking around to make sure nobody's looking at me. And I'm five miles from the nearest public road. Ain't nobody looking at me, you know. So that's how suspicious I was of it, you know, and it was getting kind of gray and it wasn't, well, it wasn't shooting time yet. And I, I can remember just being slowly walking back to my blind, waiting in the water cause I wasn't in no hurry. And I heard, <laughs> I turned around and 30 or 40 miles went on top of the thing. I said, wait a minute, something must be going on with this, you know? That's wow. crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So you turned around, mallards are on top of it, and it's it's the actual one that, that Murray just cut out the wings. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, it's the original old one. Wow. We had an old lantern, get a six-bolt lantern battery, you know, got the little spiral thing yeah. at the top of it. That's some alligator clips and put that thing, uh, put it on there. So, you know, it was. And we were we were doing real good that year. It was 1999. We were doing real good. And uh, we was killing limited ducks every day, but we'd probably hunt till 930 or 10. And if we did that with 730, we were through. Wow. So with wow. all of the de demand and you could only get one, your hands on one, did you 
shut up real quick and say, I got to keep this because you, you, the bell went off, right? The light went off in your head right there. And you're like, we're on to something. Did you have to keep it quiet or was it hard to keep it in the bag because you were so excited about what you were seeing? Well, I, I don't really remember what I did. And I did keep up with the decoy. Don't get me wrong. But there was a funny story going all around Monroe, Bat, all that Northeast Louisiana duck country saying, saying these guys were throwing their Benelli shotgun in the back of their truck so they'd have enough room to lock their mojo up because you couldn't leave a mojo in a truck unlocked, you know. Now, that's a, you know, that's a, an exaggeration a bit, but uh, that kind of told the story because people were trying to get them. They yeah. Were, they were, they, they'd do anything to get them. You know? Before I go on to Steve, I, I, I want to talk to him about his guides real quick, but, um, and his clients. What, what the name mojo is kind of voodoo it's got a new orleans spin to it uh something with witchcraft i mean where do, where does the name come from well mojo is voodoo and in, in the united states uh, uh and thereabout you know uh, voodoo is in southern louisiana marie laveau or murder laveau uh southern florida and the in the south sea islands down there and the other place it's is in africa and it's about the same thing, I'm told, the religion is, about the same thing. So how they were doing that over here, you know, from Africa, I guess when he brought the African people and he brought it over here. But but the, the, the voodoo lady, she has the little chicken feet and the shells and all that other stuff. She puts it in a bag and puts it up under a skirt where you can't see it. And it's a, it, it's a charm. It's supposed to bring her good luck that day and everything. So uh, it, it, it would basically have been called a charm i guess you know but now 1960 something muddy waters changed all that when he made the song got my mojo working so popular uh then and of course he was talking about you know with the women with the ladies he was doing well with the ladies you know so it, it kind of got uh, uh, transitioned into magic at that time and you see it used i've seen it used on national tv you know some football team starts was doing good and they start doing bad so I lost they, they lost their mojo you know when they start doing good they say they got your mojo you know now as, as far as it attaches to uh, our product uh, uh remember i'm just helping my friend murray crow get this thing going you know and and he he asked me one day he said i need to give this thing a name i said yeah you really do murray. so what do you think i ought to give it us I, I don't know whatever you think you know he said well can you help me murray is a classic tinker he's college educated come big family big farmers a lot of equipment and all that stuff but he likes to tinker he don't like business and then people are kind of that way you know and those people those of us that do business aren't really good at doing what he does you know and i said I said, well, Murray, you remember uh, uh, on our farm, we, we farmed not too far from Murray's family. They were big farmers. We we just had a little farm. My, both my parents had full-time jobs, but we had a farm because my dad wanted, wanted us all to grow up working on a farm. You know, We had a little piece of machinery there, and I don't really know what it was, but it had a motor and a transmission that worked on a belt and a few things. It had a pair of handles out the back like the old lawnmower did and something like that. I think it was a a garden plow or something, but we didn't, we didn't have any plows for it. We didn't use it, but we'd hook it to trailers and pull it down. And my dad called it a bojo. And he'd say, get that mojo and hook it to that trailer. You know, I said, you remember that Murray? He said, yes, that's, that's as good as you're going to get right there. So everybody will always remember it. He said, okay. So I had my, uh, my PR lady in the engineering thing, printing some stickers that said, uh, Mojo Mallard stuck them on the motor. If you find one of them things, the stickers still on there. And uh, uh, the second year, we put uh, serial numbers on them. But the first year, we just said Mojo Mallard. Yeah, we did. And so when we finally decided to go in business then, the, I got that same PR gifted PR lady to uh, uh, go make taglines. She made that first one, it ain't magic if it ain't Mojo. She made that 
that uh, duck in the uh, mallard in the sun. She did all that other stuff. And she walks in my office one day and she says, uh, to Denver, said, you know what mojo means? No, ma'am, I ain't got a clue why. She said, well, you're the luckiest SOB, except she didn't use SOB <laughs> in the world because it means magic. And by accident, you have named your product a magic mallard. Rather be lucky than good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have guides that don't believe in it? Do you have? Do you ever come no. across that anymore? No. no. Everybody's a believer. Everybody's a believer. We've all we've all swallowed the pill. It's uh, we're all in. You hear some people though once in a while. You don't need those. I don't need that. I the clients will that. say it sometimes. Take but, it out. You know they hunt two times a year, right? And yeah. Read something on Facebook that they have been killing them over. But no, we the guides are all in. What is when it comes to the 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 pride that you take and he mentioned Terry Demon mentioned how gear intensive waterfowl hunting is your operation here at Rocky Creek Retrievers is it's big like there's a lot of guys there's a lot of moving parts yeah, a lot of moving parts how do you go about the operations do you have an operations manager or is this just bred into the theory and your ideology as the business owner to where these guys see your passion and they want to take ownership in what you're doing. Because they got a lot to take care of. I mean, they you do. got. They do. I've never seen more UTVs in my life. Right. I've never seen more decoys hanging. And I mean, you got the the amount of Mojo product around here is amazing. How, how does that work for you? Because is there a checklist that they got to go down every single day, or how yeah. do they, how does that work? I think we're all just uh, one. I'm a workaholic. I, I love to stay busy and and uh, be well organized at it. And uh, I, I try to hire people just like myself. And uh, uh, we work hard at being prepared. Uh, that to me, as I've gotten older, it's not about the kill. It's about the preparedness. I love the early spring stuff, draining the water down, right. Growing the right foods. You know, even though I'm not a rice farmer, I'm, I'm out there all the time with the landowners and discussing the rice growth and what's going on. So it starts from the food production on the farm to the equipment, to the lodge, uh, you know, and learning the food side of the business, the hospitality side. Uh, but I do have a, I have a couple of guides that I lean on a lot that have been with me over 20 years and, uh, they help some of the, some of the constructions on the blinds and the preparedness in the field. Cause I can't be everywhere now anymore. It's gotten too big, but, uh, I, I think the key is just good quality people and, uh, and good products, good equipment. How do we end up here? Why, how are we here today? How do we wind up here? I know our relationship, but how does how does this? I like to tell that story because I've been a mojo guy from the beginning. I I think there's a couple. If they're not ninety nines or two thousand, there's one out here in the display case, and there's one out there by the sign. That they they're they're old. They're they're twenty they're twenty years old decoys. But uh, I had just I had a I have two daughters, and my oldest daughter, you know, when you're a dad of two daughters and and self employed, my daughter's got the first iPhones. I just had the old flip phone. And I had, I had just finished teal season and my oldest daughter came home from college. She drove down to my dog kennel and I was cleaning up all my gear from being gone. And I had all the mojo sitting out there. And at that time we had just the old big magic mallard. And then we had the, the dove ones. You had just come out with the dove decoys. Well, we used the dove ones in the, in the field and they were shot. To, they were shot up pretty good. And my daughter said, you ought to send them a picture on social media. Well, I didn't have social media. I mean, we're, this is 10 years ago. And uh, she took a couple pictures of it, posted it on them. And next thing you know, I got a call from Mike Morgan. And then about three days later, I got a call from Terry Denman. And that's how it started. 
And uh, the first question they want to know is, did it still work? And can we send you another one? And I said, it still work. I don't need another one. They just get shot. And so, and so next thing you know, we we're talking and I said, you'd like to come down and shoot some, I think they were just starting to work on the blue wing teal decoy. Right? That's correct. That is correct. And so they needed a place and, and, uh, they had no idea who I was and I had four guides working for me and at the time, and I'd been guiding though forever, but, uh, the operation was a lot smaller and Terry came down and we've hit it off and, and had a good relationship and, uh, we put the hurt on them. Yeah. Mike kept telling me, he said, I'm talking to this guy down in South Texas, and he came, he's got lots of blue-winged teal. He, we can go hunting down there. Well, okay. Well, you know, you hear that story often, you know. And, but about the th third time Mike told you something like that, you better start start listening, you know. And yeah. so he would keep telling me that, and he'd keep telling me that. And so we came down, and, uh, uh, you know, you could see the potential of the area here. You could just see it, you know. And we have a lot of blue-winged teal up in north Louisiana, where I'm, all over Louisiana, where I'm from, you know. But they're not as consistent as they are here because they're hopping their way down to us to this area and i suppose i don't have any proof of this but i suppose they kind of stage here because the numbers don't go up and down like they do anywhere else i've hunted uh blue wing teal and then you know well, well you know i haven't talked to you about this chad but i terry and i've talked about it and but el campo texas if you look at a good map it's where this mississippi flyway and the central flyway blue wings meet they're not going to fly across the open Gulf. Now there's some do there's been, especially now with GPS trackers, they, they do say they do cross some of the Gulf, but to get down there in Southern Mexico, where they like to go, they go all the way to Peru, Brazil. So if you look at a good map, El Campo is it. So I'm getting, so when, when you talk about mallards, you're talking about the Mississippi flyway mallards, right? Well, when I talk blue wing teal, I'm talking about all the blue wing teal, not the Mississippi flyway or the central flyway. Everybody, they come right through El Campo, Texas, headed to Mexico. So, to me, that's what makes our area. And then the rice has always been here. It may have been a secret to some of somebody else, but the rice is always here. And the timing of our rice, because we can plant so much. Arkansas is not planting rice February, are they? Still frozen, right? Yeah, no, they don't plant rice. Right. No. We're planting rice. More like March, April. So. Yeah, yeah. We're planting rice by February 20th to March 5th. So then with our first cutting, we can get two cuttings in where Arkansas doesn't get two cuttings of rice. California doesn't get two cuttings of rice. Texas does. Louisiana don't get two cuttings of rice. They get, the frost comes too early. For us, we don't get a frost till middle to late November. So we get that, and that cutting of that first crop is around the time that the adult male birds are starting to be on the move. Well, it, today there was a lot of teal that died. A lot of groups out, a celebration we talked about. Mm -hmm. Does that stay consistent? Is a 16-day season? 16-day season. Is it those results almost every day like that? Yes, sir. Crazy. It's crazy. And that's because what Terry's saying is that a lot of teal spots, feast or phantom, they're here today, gone tomorrow kind of, kind of outlook on it. Here, they're kind of staging. So the teal that are here now probably won't leave until sometime in November, but you still got all the teal from the north still to come. Oh, yeah. So every oh, day, yeah. especially like with the full moon right now, yeah. it could just keep loading up. Oh, when the hens and the babies get here, it's, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Why do, why, why do teal, in your guys' opinion, want to come down here in this muggy, humid like, why are they in a rush to get here? Why are they here so early in the year when the mallards haven't even thought about picking up and leaving the breeding grounds and, and where they live in Canada? Well, I just think their journey's longer. 
Okay. They're going further away. And then also think it's the carbohydrate in the rice and the food source. It's and so I don't plentiful. think they like, I don't think they like cold weather. You hardly yeah, ever yeah, find they don't like cold, cold weather. So. That's proven. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. It's, it's an early it's, migrator. It's still 100 degrees up in North Dakota. Yeah. Yeah. But it may not be in a week. In a week. That yeah. can change. Up there, it can change drastically, right? Yeah. yeah. So you think it has something to do with they want to get down here and get this right? Yeah, rice. they're not. They're, they're, I like to, I'm like Terry. They said they're, they're, they're not a big fan of cold weather. And w- when you get them on the reverse migration, do they come mm-hmm. right back through El Campo? Yes. So this is their beacon. Like this is where they. Yeah. Look at it on a map. It's really a, it's really a focal point. It's a center. It's got a GPS, you know, we, and that's why we leave water on our, on our farm. We leave water till it almost dries up completely because we want those birds to map us coming back. Imprint, right? You hear the term imprinting. Mm -hmm. And it works. It works. It works. It's crazy how many teal are here. How in a radius, how, big of an area are we talking where we could find teal around the El Campo area? There's probably it, a, it's about a three to four county area. Three or four counties. Mm-hmm. So not real big. I mean, when you're not thinking real about big. the size no, of Texas. Not real big. And it's, and again, we've talked about it. It's steadily shrinking. It used to be probably six counties, maybe eight, but it's shrinking. So is most of the duck hunting in Texas from here south as far as, like if you go north of here to Austin, there is there duck hunting up there? Not as much, obviously, but uh, they uh, ducks and or Texas Parks and Wildlife and DU do split up Texas into four areas. We are in the Gulf Coast region, and the Gulf Coast is the largest region. Yeah. And and for years, up until just last year, it always held the most birds in our annual state survey. Last year, it didn't. It was in North Texas last year, really? and North Texas meaning uh, Lubbock, that uh, Amarillo area. Actually had more ducks there than here, but we still had a phenomenal season. As an entrepreneur and an engineer, and you're watching that go down today, and you're hearing all that shooting and you're seeing our smiles and our celebration, are you celebrating internally with, this is fulfilling, my legacy is being written as somebody that is helping all of this happen, or is your brain going, I can make that better? Those flock of flickers are good, but they need to sit up a little higher. I need to have something that gets them up out of the grass. So, I mean, how, how are you thinking when all of that action's going on, all of that success is taking place? Because you seem like you're always trying to make your product line better and more diverse. Were you thinking along those lines today? Well, I, I never have the thought uh, that, uh, that that I did this or I did anything. I never had that thought. I, when I first started hunting with Steve Vickers, I was riding down the road with him. I don't remember where we was going, and we'd been driving past these uh, places where they teal hunt, and these people left their decoys out by their blind, and then it was all dove hunting, and so they all had mojo. And so Steve asked me, he says, uh, what does it feel like to see your product all out there? And I said, I never gave it a thought, Steve. just never gave it a thought, you know. So, so, but, but I like to see people have success, you know, and as, as you know, as time goes on, you know, the, the benefits of hunting to the hunter and the game is getting less known by the population. You know, it's just getting away from them and they're getting too many of them. All they see is some poor innocent creature got killed, you know, and that's not what hunting's about at all. You know, it's an honorable sport, been around forever. It's in the Bible. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, more people need to do it. So I'm glad to help people and I'll help them any way that I can, but I don't ever have a thought about, I did that. I've never had that kind of thought in my life. 
but I do try to make them better every time. I'm constant. I never quit thinking about that. Uh, uh, one of our mutual friends uh, uh, asked me one time, uh, I said, where do you get all these ideas at? And I said, I wake up in the night and they just stare. I don't know where they come from. <laughs> well, he was, he was, he's not going to say, but he was looking at my ranger today, a little contraction that I made and his brain was spinning. And I looked over at him and Nate and I were talking about it and he, his brain was just spinning. I, as a friend of his for a decade, I, I think he's always trying to think something better in our duck hunting world, which is pretty cool. And how excited are you, Steve Biggers, at this point in your career, 40 years of guiding? Um, I noticed today that you're saying the same stuff that you probably said 25 years ago. Look at all them tail. Yeah. Look at that water. Oh, from the yeah. left, like you're like a kid in a candy store yeah, out there. Yeah, I, I hear and that. You've seen it. A, you've yeah. seen it thousands of times. Around the lodge, I'm a different person than I am when I'm in the blind, because I still got a game face. I love it. You know, I worked for Exxon, the largest oil company in the world, and I walked away from a really good job to be a duck guide. Not many people do that. You love it still as much oh, today as ever. Yeah, I love it. And my body's wearing out. I got two hips and a bad knee, and. And, uh, you know, I trip more out in the, I used to never wear chest waders. I wear hip, I can walk on water, but you know, age slowly creeps up on you. It's tough. And today we had a young helper with me and, and, uh, you know, I can still get out there and do this great exercise, a great sport. It's just, it's just the dogs too. You know, we can talk about dogs too, but, uh, if I didn't have a good dog with me, I wouldn't even go. You gotta have a dog. Yeah. I love that part of it. Yeah. The dog's a good part and good people. And I've been doing it long enough where I've streamlined my, my personal clientele that I guide. They are my friends. We there's, so there's a group here. I think I told you about them. They hunt three days a week, the entire season. And normally I guide them, but on this particular weekend, but you know, I know their grandkids and they know my grandkids and we've got a 25 year relationship. Yeah. It's crazy. Can't beat that. Meet some wonderful people. Can't beat that. And this show has brought us a whole new, a new, um, uh, group of clients and friends you know we've we have we'll have 11 states covered in 16 days that's crazy due to terry Dimon. people will travel to kill a teal yeah that's so awesome yeah, it's just so again it's most just, people uh, would come here for a big old white tail yeah they're coming right. here for a little yeah. tiny butterball yeah. too yeah it's it's amazing the opening weekend is, i think i told you is a lot of my houston-based clients and and but uh, starting sunday night there's south carolina virginia georgia New York, California. It's crazy. It's crazy. And that's good for the whole state. I mean, no, it's good for business. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. great. It's, it's great. great. Enormous amount of money in. But you, you know, we've all we've all been around long enough to notice this. You know, when you're young, it's just about killing something. And and the 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 mark you're trying to get to, the mayor you're trying to get to is on limit. If it limits two, you want to kill two. If it limits twelve, you want to kill twelve, you know. But you watch people uh that get to hunt a lot. And as you watch them as they go through their life, it gets to be less about killing and more about the experience, you know? Right. And, uh, and I guess that's probably where all three of us are. You notice sometimes I only pick my gun up in the blind. I don't care if I kill them. I, I, I want to kill some ducks now. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but I more want to just be there right. and have yeah. success. You know, it's not about the killing of the ducks. It's about the experience. And part of the experience is, is having success. You go out there, you don't have any success. It's not right. that good. It's still a good experience. I mean, you take this morning, full moon right in your yeah. face, few oh. clouds over teal. You see teal in the moon, you know, so. That's a heck of an experience just to do that. Too. Oh, yeah. It's and, a maturity thing, I think. You know, like you said, younger, it's piles make smiles, and you got to get the pile pick. And, yeah. And now I just want, you know, picks with us hanging out because, you know, I made a commitment almost 
a little over a year ago that I was going to take all 7,000 of the photos on my phone and print them. Cause my mom, you know, our house almost burned down one time when I was a kid. And the only thing she cared to put in the car in the suburban was the photo albums and all the frames off the wall. Mm-hmm. So now I'm stacking up photo albums. of yeah, my, awesome. And then I'm going to my brother's phone and I'm doing that. And I've made a commitment because I, nobody looks at the pictures on their phone enough right. and it takes forever to scroll. So now I want that experience of going through them. And I, and I, and I'm fine with just a picture of us hanging out and not having to have 60 ducks in it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. what I mean? That's just, that's just part of the picture. I get that. But the, memories are the conversation or the kinship yeah. look at look that. at the lot you bring up a great subject but when we were decorating this lodge i i mean i love duck mounts but you've seen one pintail you've seen 100 pintails right so we we've got ducks and we've got the prints and all that but we've got a lot of we went through i, I told the guys go through your phone and pick out me 10 best pictures and we'd send them, we'd get them printed up, and they're hanging all over the lodge. Yeah, they're great. The customers too, you know? love it. And they come in and see it, and it might be just a dad and a son with two ducks and a spoonie. And, and, and then there's guys with big straps, and a lot of it's not even guys with ducks at all, just sitting on the ranger and Conversation good friends. Stars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon to me about the maturity, the maturity stages, I guess it is, through your hunting career. Mm-hmm. To where that, when I asked you that, and you're, you've been, I don't know, let me guess – your duck seasons are probably you're probably on your at least 60th duck season at i'm least. 103 years old so you know, least, i didn't hunt the first 20 years but you know? to be this excited about it still it shows yeah. you how awesome yeah. this lifestyle is yeah you know what yeah. i'm saying yeah, yeah. and well, and and i think that it's special that you know if if people took the time to understand that it's more than just the actual pull of the trigger we yeah. uh, we understand uh, us three understand the sweat equity and the conservation yeah. and the means that hunters go through to help these animals and the compassion we have for them and oh, yeah. the respect for the resource sure. but i i just get giddy about seeing like this is how my brain works okay like and anything can happen. I could walk out here and get hit by lightning tonight and be gone. My dad died at 54 of a massive heart attack in archery antelope camp, right? You, you just never know. But I feel validation of looking at you guys and my buddy Les Nesbitt, who's in the Boone and Crockett Club for the, the North American 28 or 29. He's 82. John LaMonica, who I hunted with last year again, just got back from 30 days in Argentina. He just turned 92. Wow. They won't stop. He worked for Jack Brittingham, I think is from Texas, maybe. is a Texas company, the mm-hmm. Brittinghams. Mm-hmm. Well, John LaMonaco ran his flooring company for 50 years. Wow. And, was, and took over his Peace River properties and his Oklahoma duck hunt properties. And when you're with John LaMonaco at 92 years old, I hunted in Wyoming with him last year. You'd have thought it was his first time, his first season. Yeah. Taking pictures and holding the geese up. And, yeah. And just, that's, and so I look at that like, how special is this that that's he's 50 years older than me right in 50 years i could still be doing this if everything happens yeah, isn't if, that awesome? if, if, if everything goes right yeah that's cool baseball players can't say yeah, that no no you know what i mean hunting is special yeah you know and talking about you know the number of guides we have this is kind of cool that we have my older so i'm 60 and then there's a couple of guys that are pushing 65 tracy's 65 66 mm-hmm. he hunts every day mm-hmm. tracy hunts 16 days of teal season mm-hmm. and then our 72 day duck season for the last five years, he's hunts more than anyone. We track everything. Tracy hunts in the sixty-eight to sixty-nine out of seventy-two day yeah. season. Yeah. Wow! And and you know, and he's a taxidermist in the off season, so you don't think he loves ducks? All he does is ducks. It's crazy. It's, he loves ducks. There's nothing like him. That's why when, we're going to do another podcast tomorrow. But I want to talk about why these teal would get him fired up when he's called in 
grizzlies and and gators yeah. and crocs oh, yeah. oh yeah and he's killed the yeah. big five and the dangerous five yeah and he's done it and yeah, like yeah. why what, why would you do this <laughs> i mean you've chased lions in tanzania why would you chase a blue wing teal in yeah. texas hunting's cool that's yeah that's, that's really right. neat to me but, that's right. but we'll end it by this today is last night dale watson was awesome mm-hmm. what a cool show yeah his lyrics his just awesome he's a, he's a country singer country singer i started googling him i'm like man i really want to meet that guy and talk to him and great show but last night we had chicken we had some sausage we had some shrimp mm-hmm. um tonight is going to be a little bit different because we got to kill some till today we did so we what do we you talked a little bit earlier steve biggers about your dedication and concentration and focus on the hospitality part of it and getting better at that throughout mm-hmm. your career mm-hmm. what do we can we expect tonight it's saturday night everybody had a great hunt they come back Ducks are getting clean. We're going to have a lunch. Some people are going to take a nap. Some people are already drinking cold beer out there. Right. What do we got to look forward to tonight? Oh, tonight we've got another band on top of you know, Dale Watson. We've got another young young up-and-coming guy today, Jacob Boyd. He's going to do a great job. Uh, Jacob's on tour right now with uh, Hank Williams Jr. as one of his opening acts. So uh, it should be exciting. And the food's going to be good, too. It's going to be homemade. It's going to be out. Right, I think we're having custom pork chops. I had some pork chops cut, and we're going to grill them. You know, in Texas, this time of the year, it's hot. So we got we got 60 people in the lodge. It's it's not like we can cook a big oven-type dinner. So we, we cook a lot outside, but we've got some teal marinating right now That the, this morning, the, and we're going to cook those in a couple of different ways. We're going to smoke some, and then we're going we're gonna to grill some. So it ought to be really good. It ought to be really wait. good. Are you excited? I am. You love good food, don't you? I do. Yeah, yeah. we eat well here, too. Yeah, yeah. We eat, do well. eat well. Yeah. You know, you were asking Steve about the operation of this thing, and that it, it, it broke the thought from me. And, uh, and we get to hunt with a lot of outfitters. You get to hunt with a lot of outfitters all over the world, you know, good ones and some of them that's less good and all that stuff. And, and people uh, ask me, say, which one of those outfitters that you hunt with should I go? I said, you just watch and see who I go with every year. And the ones I go with every year, that's the ones you won't go with, you yeah. know. And I, how many years have we been hunting with you? Ten Steve? years. Huh? Ten, Ten years. years, yeah. Yeah, I want to yeah. come back. I, li- I Every told year. Steve today I really like it here. Yeah. Well it's just got a cool vibe. It's got the guides are all very polite. Mm-hmm. Everybody takes ownership of what he's built and he doesn't act like the owner. He's out there restocking, he's working nonstop, like he said. And I think that that is a, a sign of a an awesome operation. And then on top of it, you know. 45 minutes we're done with the five-man limited teal yeah. and we're driving back yeah. and we're like oh man we we got done fast and there's already other groups beating us back i mean everybody was on it you know this is special absolutely yeah, you got sure. your prediction for tomorrow do we get them again we'll do better tomorrow than we did today That's we won't right. kill any more birds but we'll do better they'll work better tomorrow i agree 100 i think monday will be the best yeah okay so when we come back with part two of steve biggers and terry Demon live from rocky point ken i'm sorry rocky creek kennels rocky creek retrievers we're going to talk about why did you guys just say what you said i want to know why you think they're going to do better on the second and third day than they decoyed on the first day kind of get your guys' thoughts on that and then how big of a player is this full moon in the migration and are teal following it are they all going to be here by the time this moon goes away are they trying to beat that darkness and get down here with this full moon to me it just makes sense that they're going to move with that full moon just like mallards do on on different moon phases but be thinking about that i want to get your guys's opinion on the moon phases how it dictates um and i also want to talk about do these teal become nocturnal like mallards do do they start doing things different as the season goes on for the next two and a half weeks do they start doing you know 
not moving around very much during the day and get a lot more active in the evenings and the night. The Foul Life Podcast, Terry Demon, and Steve Biggers. Thank you all for listening. We will be back with part two tomorrow. Feel